Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 4, Episode 6, What is the Purpose of School? While it's kind of trite and reductionist to say it was reading a single book that inspired me to become a teacher, reading Mike Rose's Possible Lives back in college really was this watershed moment for me in that his anecdotes and descriptions of the powerful role that a teacher can play in helping to empower and improve the lives of their students really grabbed me and made me consider teaching seriously for the first time as a life's passion, as opposed to just something my mother kept insisting I get a license in because she was worried that my BA in English would be useless otherwise. Fourteen years later, when I read Rose's newer book, Why School?, I admit I found it a little hollow. Gone were the up-close and personal anecdotes, replaced with sweeping philosophical statements about the abstract value of public education in a democracy. It wasn't that I disagreed with any of it. I just felt that, having been at that point a practicing teacher for the intervening decade or so, the view from above just missed too many details about what happened at the school buildings back down here on planet Earth. And now, nearly another decade and a half later, I look back at wise school and I still don't disagree, but I find it incomplete. Rose celebrates a Jeffersonian image of school's potential to prepare students to be participants and activists in a vibrant vision of public citizenship, and bemoans how he feels this mission has all but vanished in the world of skill-and-drill test preparation focused on honing basic literacy and numeracy with little thought, Rose feels, for that big-picture mission. If you've listened to this podcast for long enough, you've probably heard me express some similar sentiments from time to time. You've also probably heard me speak ad nauseum to the fact that there really is no such thing as American public schools, that despite all attempts at standardization, we are still a nation of 13,000 separate school districts that all operate, to a large extent, based on different regional, state, and highly local philosophies and missions. Do we, as the United States, share a singular belief in the purpose of school as anything? That we probably don't shouldn't come as a surprise, given how evident it's become in recent years that Americans in general don't seem to share singular beliefs in the purpose or values of our nation as a whole. And yet, with the possible exceptions of McDonald's and Disney, public schools remain perhaps the biggest thing we all share in common, a familiar presence in the lives of all Americans, red, blue, purple, whatever. The fact that regardless of our views on abortion, gun rights, social welfare programs, immigration, or national health care, I think we all still pretty much agree that public schools are an institution that we want to have around, in some form or another anyway. And that's kind of amazing to me. And it begs the question of why. What makes this seemingly universal support for the idea of public schools as something is all the more amazing as national polling since the 1980s generally returns data that Americans feel public schools are failing or are otherwise somehow in trouble. But in most circles, and we'll talk about the exception shortly, the answer doesn't seem to be, let's get rid of those dumb schools. It rather seems to be, let's change those schools into what we want and need them to do. So what is our vision of what we want schools to be and what we want them to be able to do. Here I find myself turning to political writer George Packer, whose piece last month in The Atlantic I'm going to use as the frame for this episode. In a rather lengthy yet surprisingly readable article, Packer attempts to divide our country not into two Americas, but four. 
But these division lines don't cleave neatly to Democratic and Republican party identifications, or even to regional borders. Rather, they represent ideological understandings of what America is and visions of what it should be. I'll summarize Packer's Four Americas here for you briefly. I really do recommend you read the entire article, and I've linked to it at the website. And then I'll go off on my own interpretation of what I think each of these four Americas sees as the purpose and ideal vision for public schools. The first of Packer's four Americas is what he labels Free America, representing the ideology of those who, in former President Ronald Reagan's words, see government not as a solver of problems, but as the problem. Or, in the words of Austrian economist Friedrich Hayek, planning leads to dictatorship. Free America, as Packer describes it, embraces a libertarian vision of a society with extremely limited government, unrestrained by social or economic regulation, where citizens are free to form associations and engage in business practices that maximize efficiency and profit for the skilled, and which weed out unfit ideas and ventures for the benefit of all. No taxes, no unions, no restrictions on the economic freedom of entrepreneurs to structure their businesses and sell their products. Stoked by the fires of anti-communism and influenced by thinkers like Ayn Rand, Packer's description of free America also includes the 1990s neoliberal dreams of globalization, that opening markets and blurring international borders will yield political freedoms as well. But free America's strength is its resistance to oppressive forces, political and economic, and its drawbacks lie in the high body count of those left behind, the small businesses that can't compete with global mega-conglomerates, employees who endure abusive work conditions, and no job security as a sacrifice for high profits for the owners and high returns for the investors, and local communities robbed of their social institutions thanks to the reductions or eliminations in tax revenue. I think that the purpose of school in the world that free America holds dear is to provide focused, tailored educational experiences, individualized to the particular needs and demands of each educational consumer. No more, and no less. In Free America's vision of schooling, you would have lots of options as a student to choose from. You get what you want, and you get what you pay for. Educators themselves provide services, and those who do so most effectively will be in the most demand, while those who don't will be weeded out of the profession. Where do I see Free America's vision for schools today? I see it in entrepreneurs like Salman Khan, who we profiled in Season 3, Episode 1, and in other proponents of decentralized and highly modular learning, the self-styled innovators and disruptors who see our present system of public schools as bloated, outdated, institutions poorly suited to the dynamic world in which we live. I see it in folks like Sir Kenneth Robinson, who have been pushing for years for an educational model that adapts to the needs of students, rather than forcing students to adapt to the structures of the public schooling system. I see it echoed in the various homeschooling, outschooling, and unschooling movements, and in the professors who pioneered massively open online courses, or MOOCs, where anyone, anywhere, can seek out the specific educational resources they need to follow a path they design without having to submit or conform to a particular bureaucracy's barriers to access. This vision of education has a lot of support from wealthy investors like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the MacArthur Foundation, and the American Council on Education. At its most radical, it takes the form of visions like those of the Rain Corporation's spin-off Institute of the Future, or the ACT Foundation, who forwarded an idea for completely modular education through a blockchain-based system. Although their original Learning is Earning website no longer seems active, tech writer Jessica Barron summarizes their ideal system as, quote, 
based on the idea that education and work are integrated rather than sequential, and that learning takes place everywhere and from everyone rather than just in a formal school environment. Their goal is to have a large marketplace of informal experts and learners exchanging skills and knowledge for money." Unquote. ACT's ideal model would use blockchain technology like Bitcoin to maintain a universally accessible ledger that would record every citizen's eduBlock accumulation. One eduBlock in their vision would represent one hour of learning. I'll continue from Barron's description, quote, eduBlocks would be available from both formal institutions like schools, but also from your workplace, from community centers, or on a digital app. Theoretically, anyone could provide an eduBlock to anyone else, the goal being equal access for all to transparent education. Of course, eduBlocks won't be free, but those without financial resources would be able to use the Ledger platform to find investors. The student will offer these investors a percentage of their future income in exchange for free learning hours." Unquote. So education without schools, or at least not the sole province of schools, is best schools as one potential menu option, and likely not a publicly funded obligation, but the province of those willing to independently finance their creation and operation. This vision of schooling is infinitely more nimble and adaptable than what we've got now. It's one that could let employers see exactly what skills a potential hire has, as opposed to having to guess based on the nebulous value of a diploma. Of course, the free America vision of education does raise serious questions of equity of access. If education is in some way a pay-to-play system, then educational access could be extremely inequitable. That's a huge problem in our existing system of public schooling, of course, and a world full of eduBlocks could exacerbate that. It's also a world that depends not upon presumably expert regulators and evaluators, but instead simply on the law of supply and demand, of crowdsourced customer reviews, to assure educational quality. The educational vision of free America. The second vision for America that Packer describes is what he names smart America, although he does put significant scare quotes around the word smart. He describes its membership as the beneficiaries and drivers of the knowledge economy. Quote, men and women with college degrees, skilled with symbols and numbers, salaried professionals in information technology, computer engineering, scientific research, design, management consulting, the upper civil services, etc. They go on to college with one another, intermarry, gravitate to desirable neighborhoods in large metropolitan areas, and do all they can to pass on their advantages to their children. They are not one percenters, those are mainly executives and investors, but they dominate the top 10% of American incomes with outsized economic and cultural influence. They're at ease in the world that modernity created. They were early adopters of things like HBO, Mileage Plus Platinum and MacBook Pro, grass-fed organic beef and Amazon Prime. They welcome novelty and relish diversity. They believe that the transnational flow of human beings, information, goods, and capital ultimately benefits most people around the world. You have a hard time telling what part of the country they come from because their local identities are submerged in the homogenizing culture of top universities and elite professions. They believe in credentials and expertise, not just as tools for success, but as qualifications for class entry." End quote. Of all four groups, smart America is probably the one that benefits the most from the current system of public education that we have. They're the group that economist Nicholas Lemon calls the Mandarin class. Those who see the purpose of schooling in the history of thinkers like Horace Mann, see episodes one and two of season three, as an equalizer of opportunity, with a mission to equip everyone with the basic skills they need to take part in our economic and democratic systems. 
In their idealized form, these schools provide opportunity to everyone, and those who work hardest and seize opportunities in the savviest way will rise to the top, to the benefit of everyone. Schooling becomes a meritocratic engine that produces a highly skilled, versatile, and cosmopolitan group of technocrats whose rightful place is in the leadership positions of our country. But, as both Lemon and Packer caution, this is a group that also has an investment in inequity. This is not to say they won't advocate, earnestly, for increased funding to level the educational playing field, but simultaneously, they advocate for maintaining the advantages they hold. They advocate even stronger for maintaining the advantages they hold for their own children. This is a system designed to have winners and losers, and even when they argue that there should be a bottom floor so the losers only fall so far, Smart America still wants to do everything they can to make sure that their kids win out. To do any less would be seen in Smart America as a failure of one's parenting responsibilities. As a result, white professional parents have been the single biggest force in maintaining school racial and economic segregation, as detailed extensively in the New York Times podcast series Nice White Parents, and somewhat less extensively in my, in my own podcast in Season 2, Episode 7. I think Smart America prefers, as the title of Tyak and Cuban's famous book on ed reform says, tinkering towards utopia, as opposed to taking any truly radical measures to change the system. The ideal future of public education for Smart America would probably look a lot like the present of public education. Some excellent schools with extremely high economic barriers to entry. I think they would probably argue scholastic barriers to entry, but you could fill a podcast series with how many of those scholastic barriers track with economic and racial ones. A bunch of decent schools, and a great many schools that vastly underserve their students. And to fundamentally reshape that schooling system to something more equitable would first require acknowledgement of and thorough reckoning with inequity, which, as both Lemon and Packer fear, is something Smart America doesn't want to do because it would expose as a lie the meritocratic narrative that they've achieved what they have through nothing more than their own hard work, perseverance, and innovation. If the system is rotten to the core, then why should the winners of that system hold so much power and influence? The dilemma of smart America when it comes to public education. The third group is what Packard labels as real America. Again, scare quotes around real. The heartland, small town, socially conservative, mainly white poor of the working class. Americans who in earlier parts of the last century were considered the core constituency of the Democratic Party, before that party decided to embrace and be embraced by smart America. And while Republicans used the issue of race to help win real America's loyalty in more recent decades, it's not the free America aspect of the Republican Party, whom they feel represents them best, but rather the populist movements embodied by those like former President Donald Trump. In Packard's words, quote, Real America isn't a shining city on a hill with its gates open to freedom-loving people everywhere, nor is it a cosmopolitan club to which the right talents and credentials will get you admitted, no matter who you are or where you're from. It's a provincial village where everyone knows everyone's business, no one has much more money than anyone else, and only a few misfits ever move away. The villagers can fix their own boilers, and they go out of their way to help a neighbor in a jam. A new face on the street will draw immediate attention and suspicion. Unquote. These are the people who have seen the communities in which they find identity and meaning devastated by the global flight of jobs, industry, and capital, thanks to both free America and smart America's embrace of globalization, free trade, and high technology. These are farmers, factory workers, miners, and tradespeople whose world is considered merely flyover country by those who embrace the information economy, 
and the traditional values that they hold dear are considered either antiquated or outright retrograde and shameful by those other two Americas, in whose hands sit the reins of the country. The real America, in Packard's view, doesn't so much want those reins as they want their own local world to be left alone, to not be dictated to, to be respected and be prosperous without having to change. Populism in some segments of America runs deep, and with it a kind of anti-elitism that often doubles as anti-intellectualism, or at the very least, suspicion of those with formal education and access to the, to the corridors of political power. As Thomas Jefferson once said, the plowman was morally superior to the professor because he, quote, has not been led astray by artificial rules, unquote. The opposite of Plato's vision of philosopher kings, real America places its trust in the common sense wisdom of ordinary people, or sometimes even in wealthy folk who just refuse to adopt the outward mannerisms of the elites. After all, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Donald Trump were all quite wealthy members of the elite, who nevertheless gained a lot of traction with real America by speaking in plain, simple, very direct sorts of language, and especially in the case of Trump, being willing to validate real America's distaste for intellectual and economic elites. Anti-intellectualism, though, does not necessarily mean anti-school. As far as I can tell, schools are beloved institutions in real America, in a way that also draws upon Horace Mann and Noah Webster's traditions when they think of the purpose of school, not necessarily as a socioeconomic equalizer, but as a moral one. The idea that schools should help reinforce a certain core set of values around hard work, obedience, and loyalty. If schools for free America and smart America are all about equipping students with the technical skills they need to succeed in a world that demands constant innovation and adaptation to change, Schools in real America, it seems to me, are a place to pass on tradition and local cultural capital, a place where students gain a certain access to core narratives that help them form a sense of their American and local identities, albeit a very particular definition of America in which they can take pride. Schools are also places that build and reinforce relationships, the place where several generations of a family can be taught by the same venerated teachers, teachers who help get problem kids back on track, and who help them find their place in the community, as opposed to steer them to set their sights on college and the wide world beyond. In the narrative of real America, schools are for hosting football games, pep rallies, fundraisers, disaster relief sites. The person you take to the prom may well be the person you marry. In many episodes of this podcast, I call attention to the decentralized nature of American public schooling. But for real America, this is not a bug. This is a feature. Schools in real America are integral parts of the communities in which they sit, not cogs in a larger national system. Local leaders and local teachers, members of the community, are and should be the ones who operate these institutions, and the state and federal governments, not to mention egghead education researchers, scholars, and tech entrepreneurs, should keep their noses out. In real America's vision, then, the future of school should look a lot like the past of school, Highly local, taught by beloved schoolmasters and schoolmarms who know how to make kids stay quiet and behave as they learn just what they need to in order to be good, productive members of the community. And it goes without saying that this vision of good, productive membership is pretty exclusively white and Christian. That's where real America runs into a massive disconnect with, well, the real America, which is highly diverse, highly interconnected, and interdependent with what's going on in other parts of the nation and across the world. So-called Real America's vision of schools does little to prepare its students for that world, which it needs to do, because factory, farm, and manual labor jobs no longer provide the economic security they used to. 
Furthermore, Real America's schooling vision offers little place for black and brown children and families to find meaningful inclusion and affirmation. Of course, then again, both Smart America and Free America, while they play excellent lip service to that kind of inclusion, offer, respectively, insufficient and non-existent social and economic supports to level the playing field for that kind of inclusion either. For many Black, Latinx, Asian, and Indigenous Americans, the story of schooling has always been one of a fight for inclusion, equal access, and equitable treatment, and all three of Packer's Americas that we've talked about so far have utterly failed to provide a vision for that. Maybe that mission falls to Packer's last vision of America, which he calls Just America. While he describes Just America as something of a millennial and Gen Z phenomenon, its roots go far, far back through the more radical elements of the civil rights movements of the 1960s and 50s, and even the earlier parts of the 20th century. It's the narrative of America that, quote, reflects the fracturing distrust that defines our culture. Something is deeply wrong. Our society is unjust. Our institutions are corrupt, end quote. In Packard's words, Just America's vision, or critique, really, of our country, forces white people, like me, to, quote, see the betrayal of equality that has always been the country's great moral shame, the heart of its social problems. Just America has a dissonant sound, for in its narrative, justice and America never rhyme. A more accurate name would be unjust America, in a spirit of attack rather than aspiration. For just Americans, the country is less a project of self-government to be improved than a site of continuous wrong to be battled, end quote. And Packer continues, quote, what is the narrative of just America? It sees American society not as mixed and fluid, but as a fixed hierarchy, like a caste system. Any talk of progress is false consciousness, even hurtful. What was innocent by default suddenly finds itself on trial. Every idea is cross-examined, and nothing else can get done until the case is heard, end quote. In other words, in the eyes of just America, the whole national prospect, every existing structure, and every envisioned aspiration is tainted by historical and present-day racism, sexism, classism, homophobia, and all the other forms of oppression. Just America finds its roots in critical race theory. And by the way, I'm using that with capital letters in the academic sense, in the hopes to distinguish that from how the contemporary political right, which often uses critical race theory as a blanket catch-all for just about any acknowledgement that racism exists on a structural level in America, Critical race theory, capital letters, like its ancestor schools of thought, postmodernism and poststructuralism, argues, among other things, that the Enlightenment and most of the features of Western thought, objectivity, rationality, science, equality, freedom, are all basically BS, just a smokescreen for power relationships. In extremis, this kind of school of thought says that the very idea of reason or universal truth is nothing more than a set of tools used by the powerful to maintain their power. What should we look to instead? Individuals' subjective experiences, particularly those individuals who have been oppressed, not just materially by things like unjust laws and living conditions, but by entire ways of thinking, by language itself, that alienates some people so as to benefit others. Michel Foucault, Judith Butler, Bell Hooks, Derek Bell, these are thinkers who believe, as Packer puts it, that, quote, Words can be a form of violence. One can therefore close down a general argument with a personal truth. You wouldn't understand, or I'm offended. And that you should keep your mouth shut when identity disqualifies you from speaking. Unquote. Just America may find its roots in academic philosophy, but especially in the last decade, its manifestations have sought to be very hands-on and practical. 
Just America, for example, represents the visions of movements like Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement, Occupy Wall Street, and many of the various efforts towards police reform and climate justice. At its best, Just America holds the powerful accountable, or even more so, transfers that power into the hands of those who have been systematically denied it. At its worst, it suffers from the same danger as all revolutionary movements, merely flipping the hierarchy of who's on top and creating a new ruling class as opposed to eliminating hierarchy entirely. As Packer puts it, as Just America's ideas grew to and continue to dominate higher academia, at least in the liberal arts and social sciences, quote, everyone sensed their power. Not everyone resisted the temptation to abuse it. And the result could be monolithic group thought, hostility to open debate, and a taste for moral coercion. The parameters of acceptable expression are a lot narrower than they used to be. The loudest public voices in a controversy will prevail. Offending them can cost your career. Justice is power. End quote. So-called cancel culture, which certainly exists on all sides of the political spectrum, has nevertheless become particularly associated with just America because of its recent outsized influence on both popular media and educational institutions. In some sense, then, I don't have to speculate what schools would look like in just America's vision, as, at least in much of higher education, we're already there. At least inside the classroom, and we'll talk for a moment about what I mean by that. Since Just America believes that schools, like any other institution, maybe even more than most, are founded in and maintained by white supremacy, then those schools have to be deconstructed and taken apart. At minimum, this means changing up the reading lists, redefining methods of assessment, and certainly of school discipline. Colleges and universities have already been doing that. And the slow encroachment of this thinking into K-12 schools, especially in the push towards more active anti-racist teachings since the George Floyd murder, has been significant enough to become a major talking point of alarm among the political right. In those most alarmist of views of just America, schools have become echo chambers of critical race theory orthodoxy, swapping out the cultural transmission of a body of knowledge established by dead white dudes with the transmission of the narratives of living BIPOC folk. Or, to really keep true to the postmodernist ideal of constant critique, a Maoist-style revolution in perpetuity, a constant questioning and tearing down of anything resembling orthodoxy and structure. It would look like a kind of unschooling, an educational vision every bit as atomized as Free America's notion of eduplocks, except the larger purpose would be, instead of preparation for entry into the capitalist economy, rather some sort of self-actualization and personal empowerment for some, and uncompromising self-critique and reckoning for others. Now, to say that just America wants this for schools is probably about as fair as saying that real America wants KKK rallies at homecoming, or free America wants students to have the option of indentured servitude in exchange for tuition. In fact, Packer himself notes that much of what just America has accomplished in schools has generally been restricted to, quote, human resources departments, reading lists, and awards ceremonies, unquote, not because they haven't gotten more traction, but because it's all the traction they want. In his analysis, Just America has just too much of an investment in the vision of smart America. Even as they critique the false meritocracy, most of Just America also belongs to it, benefits from it, and doesn't want to give up the advantages they hold in it. If what working-class African-Americans and Latinx students want and need most is to access those corridors and mechanisms of schooling that translate to higher-paying jobs and a more dignified and equal place in the United States, then Just America's call to tear the whole system down without a clear sense of what it would build in its place, with, in fact, a hostility to that very kind of question, 
may well be problematic. It's even more problematic if Packard is right, and just America's calls to scuttle the ship of public education mid-voyage are undercut by a reluctance to do much more than change around the deck chairs and wrestle for who gets to control the onboard public address system. But to stretch that metaphor just a little further, just America, like real America, is at its best when it calls out about the people thrown overboard, left behind, abandoned as the ship sails on by. The Black Lives Matter movement and the ascendancy of the populist alt-right are both in some ways reactions to that trail of castaways and shipwrecks left behind by free and smart America who have been steering the ship this whole time. Packer concludes his piece by insisting that, that all four narratives of America, quote, respond to real problems. Each offers a value that the others need and lacks ones that the others have. Free America celebrates the energy of the unencumbered individual. Smart America respects intelligence and welcomes change. Real America commits itself to a place and has a sense of limits. Just America demands a confrontation with what the others want to avoid. They all rise from a single society, and even in one as polarized as ours, they continually shape, absorb, and morph into one another. But their tendency is also to divide us, pitting tribe against tribe. These divisions impoverish each narrative into a cramped and ever more extreme version of itself." Unquote. Packer concludes, quote, I don't much want to live in the Republic of any of them. Unquote. He says we're basically forced to live in the same country, so we somehow have to learn to get along without providing much in the way of specifics as to how we're supposed to do it. So I'm going to be so bold as to try and present one, however vague it might be. Public schools are supposed to be that institution where the children of all Americans, ascribing to all of those narratives, and to still others, take part, sit side by side, and jointly pursue academic, extracurricular, and athletic activities. Schools have and continue to serve a function of indoctrination and assimilation to particular visions of America, but they also have and continue to serve as spaces for mandated interaction and dialogue for seven hours a day, five days a week, in ways that we're really never forced as Americans to do ever again. As students, we're quarantined together for all of that time, during the most formative years of our lives. And during that time, we have to find some way to coexist and just maybe learn from one another. To be sure, schools are highly divided by socioeconomics, by race, and within schools by ability-grouped classes and social cliques. But movies like The Breakfast Club are classics because they speak to the power of those moments when young people, forced to be in the same room together, can break through their stereotypes of one another and develop new understandings, maybe even form bonds of friendship. All four of Packer's Americas are at work attempting to shape schools, and schools in turn reflect elements of all of them. What that means is that schools have the potential to speak to all of those needs, freedom and individuality, a chance to advance based on merit, a sense of rootedness in place, and a critical eye and bold voice calling out injustice. Students are exposed, if they're lucky, to all of those threads, and experiencing the push and pull of those ideas can make for tremendous learning. I fully recognize that a great many Americans aren't very big on listening to and learning from one another right now, but as I just described, Schools can be that rare place where caring and committed teachers can make sure we have our feet held to the fire and be forced to listen to and learn from people we don't always agree with, at least if we want to earn a passing grade. That's my vision of school anyway. Yours may well differ. And you know what? If it does, that's okay. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time.
I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new.